Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Builders Build podcast. I'm your host, George Poo. And today I'm super excited to bring you a pioneer of machine learning and I think also asset management. Um, Ernest Chen, who's the founder and CEO of Predict Now. Um, so, Ernest, first of all, thank you so much for joining the show today. Uh, second of all, can you tell us more about what is Predict Now? Thank you for inviting me, George. I'm really excited uh, to talk about uh, AI and, uh, you know, as relevance to asset management as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, predict now. AI is what um, we call a corrective AI company. What that means is that we don't try to take over decisions making from the trader or the human uh, or the, um, the industrial operator. Instead, we are trying to um, help correct some of the error in decisions that are made by uh, our users. So we don't make decisions from scratch. We correct decisions that are made by our users already. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for our, for our listeners who are not really familiar with machine learning, uh, Ernest, can can give our viewers like a general overview about like what machine learning does? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, you know, I think it may be easier to to uh, use a concrete example. Well, I'll give two examples. One is um, a very everyday example, uh, and that is in uh, self-driving cars, right? So everybody heard how uh, amazing uh, you know, Google has uh, done make their self-driving cars and how Tesla you can uh, do auto autopilot and so forth. But uh, the fact is that um, th these are examples is where AI you know make decisions from scratch, right? So you just take your hands off the wheel and you know let let the car takes you from uh, Toronto to Niagara Falls and you can take a nap. That's the that's the uh, holy grail of a uh, fully autonomous AI system. The fact is, even Tesla doesn't allow you to do that. You know, even Tesla doesn't have the confidence that you can just take a nap. They want you to put your hands on the stereo in case something bad happens. So you can see from this example that fully autonomous AI is not quite there yet, even with billions of dollars of investment in self-driving cars. Right? On the other hand, you can hardly find a car these days that doesn't have um, assistive driving technology. So, you know, you are the one making decision to change lane, but sometimes you change lane without looking, you know, to your left shoulder and the car running you know, ahead of you and the car, your, your assistant driver will say, Hey, don't change lane right now. So this is corrective AI in action, right? So it is not trying to tell you when to change lane. It tells you when not to change lane and that saves life. And this is practical and it's everywhere. You cannot find a car without it now. So. Taking this example in putting it in the in asset management context, we have the same situation. You know, many traders thought that AI would be ideal if they could just make stock pick decisions all by on its own. You know, so the trader give put a bunch of money in the account, they retire to the Caribbean, and the program just trade in and out, and then months later the account double. That would be the ideal situation for applying AI to asset management. That is not easy. You know, if that were, if were that easy, everybody would be in the Caribbean. But no, we are still calling, you know, basement office every day, trying to make it better. So clearly, just like in self-driving car, fully autonomous AI trading is not quite there yet. Maybe in the three select firm, maybe there's a group in Citadel that's doing that. Maybe there's a group in uh, Renaissance Technologies that's doing that, but certainly not in most uh, hedge funds. Even but corrective, what corrective AI do again is that you know, they don't have to pick stock for you. You are the one who is going to pick the stock. Or, you know, if you're not a discretionary trader, 
we can use simple algorithm like buy low, sell high to pick a stock. But the corrective AI technology will tell you, hey, this particular trade has a high probability of loss. What is the probability of loss? You know, 65%. Well, what, what we do with that probability is the, again, this unit is the, is the trader, don't you think? Is it too high, 65%? Or is it okay to half the size of your bet? So again, corrective AI in this case is assisting the trader, not taking over the decision-making process, but making it better, lowering the risk and um, helping the trader to optimize uh, their um, performance, their sharp ratio and model. So that's uh, the idea of predictive, predictive AI is to assist asset managers to correct a decision, to optimize decision, and not just in asset management, but also outside. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think for our, <clears throat> for our curious listeners, they might be asking, like, Ernest, you know, what's the so-called secret sauce or what's the backend mechanism that can actually allow, you know, predict now and your firm to actually be able to help firms uh, predict like the probability of, for example, if tomorrow CSMP is going to be up or down. Um, so how, how is predict now able to decide such things? Uh, can you walk us through a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, you know, if you ask any sort of AI expert, usually the answer is big data, right? So, you know, the, the secret source of AI is actually data. It's not so much the AI algorithm, which by today at, 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 at this point is fairly generic, right? So, you, you know, is it deep learning or is it uh, random forest? Those are standard algorithms. We are not um, in, you know, in academic research trying to create a new machine learning algorithm. The algorithm we use are used by any number of people. Even high school students have access to free software in machine learning these days, although it takes a long time to fine tune it and put it together. That's true, but that is more of a engineering problem. It's not so much a uh, scientific problem. Um, what the crucial, like I said, the secret sauce, the crucial ingredient in a successful machine learning prediction is the data. And that's where we excel at. So because we are domain expert in asset management, we know what kind of data are needed to make this prediction. And it is not data that will result in one or two predictors. Like any trader would say, oh, you know, one day return or um, the RSI indicator or, or the uh, uh, PE ratio, you know, you know, a human trader might look at a few of these predictors, but the power of machine learning is that you can look at hundreds, if not thousands of these predictors. Many of these hundreds or thousands of predictors on its own are fairly weak. You know, if it's so easy to look at the PE ratio to judge whether it is a stock is a good buy or not. Again, everybody will be in the Caribbean. It's not that easy. So you, you, you know, what about adding um, RSI indicator to the PE ratio? How about adding the GDP quote? Well, the list goes on. And by the time you get several hundred of these predictors, no human can tell you how are they influencing the outcome of a prediction. But that's what the machine learning is good at. It can take a lot of weak predictors, hundreds of them, put them together in a, like an organism that work together uh, with their nonlinear causality, with their nonlinear relationship and produce an outcome that make use of most of these predictors working together. 
that is the power of, um, of machine learning. Weak, a lot of weak features together will produce a strong outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's how we can assist in the investment process. We are, you know, if we are not the one to produce a basic trading strategy using a few simple rules, that's the job of the investor, of the trader. We are the one who tell you, well, it's good that you have this trading rule, but you're under certain circumstances. And we cannot specify what circumstance because it depends on hundreds of variables. Your trading rule might suffer loss. And there's a probability that it will suffer loss. And so, so that's, uh, that's how we can help hmm. the trader without actually, um, you know, pinpointing what it is, uh, that, uh, uh, that will generate a trading signal. Mm, yeah, I think Ernest, I think a lot of us might ask, like, what inspired the idea of Predict Now? Um, like, what made you realize, okay, this might be something I want to work on um, for the next maybe five or 10 years or even more? Um, because, like, for our listeners who don't know, like, Ernest actually reigned in asset management firm QTS um, for quite some time. So, Ernest, like, what made you believe in Predict Now and wanted to start working on it? Well, the main reason is that, um, you know, I had been in the intersection of AI and finance for a long time, for decades, starting at IBM and then at Monsanto. And frustratingly, even though I have good success in uh, machine learning while I was ABI, at IBM, you know, writing industry-leading papers, and I also have good success as a management manager. Uh, for example, QTS had to never lose money for the last five years, no matter what the economic environment was. Um, it was frustrating that we could not put the two together. Just like many other firms, we had a tough time applying machine learning from scratch, like making it to trade autonomously. Just like Tesla might have difficulty getting their car to drive from Toronto to Niagara <laughs> without someone putting their hand on the wheel. So, um, but in the last few years, we adopted the corrective AI point of view, which is not to make this autonomous decision, but to correct for the errors. And it became much more successful. So finally, we have uh, a moment where what I, as a machine learning researcher, have real, real life business impact on what I do as an asset manager. That's the first time in decades that I see this benefit of machine learning. And, be, and besides, this realization tells me that, well, this success is not going to be limited to asset management. Clearly, it can be applicable outside of SMF because in every industrial process, in every commercial process, there are decisions to be made. And most of those decisions currently are not being made by AI system. They're made by humans, like a loan officer, or they're made by simple algorithms, like a, a traditional um, expert system. And we could use machine learning to improve on decisions. So we decided to launch a separate company because of the success in asset management we decided to take that technology out and spin it off into a different company that can be um, applied to multiple verticals. And I really wanted to ask, like, Ernest, like, how, how easy or how difficult it was to create a machine learning company from scratch? Because I, I know the technology itself, it's very, um, I, guess, I guess, expensive to maintain and to run simulations, to run, like, the machine learning algorithms themselves might be pretty expensive to, to maintain. So how did you launch Predict Now? Um, just from scratch. Well, there are two um, aspects in launching um, machine learning companies that, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of the technical side. Um, 
There's one which is the the I would say the DevOps, the engineering and the infrastructure side. For that side is not dissimilar to any sort of tech firm. Right? It is a software engineering process. And you've got to hire good software engineers before anything. Even just building a website, you need a good engineer. Mm-hmm. So that part is common to any kind of tech startup. The other part which is unique to AI uh, based tech company is that you got to know um, what algorithm actually are practical and that what works. You know, any, you know, to a layman, they would read the newspaper and they think that the only thing that is working is deep learning. That happened to be not the case for most commercial data. Deep learning is actually not necessarily the best algorithm to apply to a lot of data that what we call tabular or heterogeneous data. Deep learning is best for data that are homogeneous, like image data, rich data, um, and uh, video data, or even um, uh, textual data. Because, you know, you read one paragraph, it's the same 26 alphabet as the next paragraph. That's the uniformity. Whereas for commercial or financial data, one column might represent PE ratio, and the second column might represent the new sentiment score of that particular uh, news uh, on that company. They completely different thing. It's apple to orange. Can you compare the two columns? So, you never actually had a hard time traditionally dealing with that. Maybe now with a lot of additional uh, add-ons like transformer-based neural network, you can solve it to some extent. But with this hugely complicated uh, piece that is transformer-based neural network, the performance, generally speaking, are still on par with simple random forest. So. One of the things that a um, that is unique to an AI tech company is that the tech team has to have enough experience in applying machine learning to real life art and not just reading news, uh, reading uh, papers or uh, uh, reading newspaper to see you know, whatever off the shelf deep learning network is the is the uh, talk of the day and and, and implement it. So you know. Fortunately, we have been doing machine learning. I, at least I've been doing machine learning for decades. And so I understand what is practical and what is just more hype than, than, than practical. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect of, of that is unique to AI tech company is that uh, data again. Most tech company is software-based. They don't need to deal with data. You know, they're coding. Once you code the thing, you're good. Like, for example, um, you know, you write, Let's say you build a uh, something like Google Doc, an online uh, document processing system, right? And you know nobody asks you to produce the input to that word processing. You test the user's job. Your your job is to make it easy for the user to type and follow. But that is not the case from AI tech company. In AI tech company, you have to do two jobs. Most of the users not only cannot build the software, that's understood. They also don't know how to use that the input. <laughs> so you practically have to write the novel them. It's, it's like not only selling the user the word processing software, but you actually have to give them a novel that they can use to type that novel in. So what we find is actually a little bit of a um, uh, wake-up call to us too, is that when we first launched the system as a software, few people can use it successfully. And that we, they only get to become successful customers when we also provide the input to that system. And that is kind of uh, refreshing. 
not not something that a traditional software company have to deal mm. with. Yeah, and I think Ernest, coming back to your first point, I think this might be a silly question, but like in the recent years, there are so many developments in the machine learning spectrum. I think there's deep learning, like you said, that's coming up. Um, there's also neural network, which may not be related to machine learning, but has been pretty hyped up in the past few years as well. Um, so how did you decide which framework is the right one to go to? Uh, and can you share, share your thoughts a little bit more about like what you think of deep learning and neural network and those other new terms that's been coming up? Mm -hmm. Yes. So that is again, a matter of really practical experimentation, right? So if you would just sit there and, 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 you know, watch a YouTube video or read book, uh, uh, blogs or, or papers, you really doesn't have, you, you can't really form your own opinion on what technology is good. So we, as I said, have been constantly experimenting with different algorithms. You know, I, you know, I might give the impression that, you know, I poo pooing the deep learning thing, saying that it's mostly hyped for the particular kind of data we have, but that is not based on my personal feeling or, or subjective feeling or my well, opinion. I'm not a opinion columnist writing in the Goldman Mail or New York Times, hey, you know, deep learning most likely won't work. That is not that because we actually use it. We are, you know, we, we are technologists, we are scientists. We, when there's a new technique like new neural network or deep learning, we actually going to use it. And I have used it and it doesn't produce anything better than the simpler, you know, random forest group based gradient versus entry for many of the problems that we have applied to. We have done back, you know, benchmark comparison. And that's also, we have participated in Kaggle competition. We have read other people's papers comparing the technique. And the general consensus is there is no particular advantage in using neural network or deep learning for a heterogeneous data set like financial data. And uh, so, and it is, however, much more complicated to implement and maintain uh, a deep learning system. And if you read the paper, you know, every other week, there's a new technique to say, oh, this is going to much better. And a week later, no, no, my technique is going to be better. It is never ending. It's very active research. But all of that just add complexity and it makes the system quite hard to maintain and it's actually quite slow to deal with the data that we have. So uh, it is through experimentation and, and, and experience and learning from um, other people's publications, uh, benchmarking this technique that we come to the decision what to implement in our own mm -hmm. system. Yeah, and I think Ernest, like lately, I think there's also like a lot of buzz in AI as well. I think in, in the, in like the normal news cycle, we have a Google engineer claiming that uh, Google's AI might be sentient, uh, which I think created a lot of buzz, uh, which I, I think Ernest, you're the, one of the best people to ask on this topic. Uh, what are your thoughts about um, those, those engineers that claim their AI might be sentient? Yes. So, you know, as I uh, said, you know, deep learning excel in uh, homogeneous data. What, you know, so they have been proven to be excellent in uh, text processing, understanding text. Well, we use iPhone every day. I speak to my iPhone, I retrieve information. That speech and text data has been excellent. It's getting better, right? You know, uh, and um, now it goes beyond just understanding what you said, but to um, compose, to create new text that makes sense, that is useful, like GPT-3. So language modeling and speech recognition uh, is one of the major success of deep learning. And similarly, image recognition it is as well, because 
Now, I understand nowadays that, uh, you know, to let's say to discriminate between dogs and cats, video or images, you achieve over 99% accuracy based on deep learning. So again, those are hectro, uh, that's a homogeneous data. And deep learning excel in that image, text, speech. Um, and, you know, and, and again, not just in understanding or summarizing it now, but it also in creating original uh, text, speech, and image, uh, this sort of thing. So yeah, that's great success. And furthermore, you know, you can hear reinforcement learning being very successful in playing games, uh, Go, chess, or whatever. They beat the, the most expert players, the grandmasters. It's un, you know, unrivaled, you know, for example, the AlphaGo. So, um, but again, there's a small set of rules in, in, in Go and there's a four set of rules in chess. It is far cry from many practical problems like um, trading stocks, which are extremely complex because there are so many different factors that can affect. It's not a close game. You, there's not a small set of rules that you can follow. Uh, and there's so many players. You're not playing against one person. You're playing against millions of other traders, right? And also, it is different from even a uh, industrial problem like uh, allocating resource to an emergency room in a hospital, which is has a big sort of caustic element. You have to realize what the weather it is outside, what is the road condition, what time of day, in addition to what's happening within the hospital. So uh, for those uh, problems, you know, the deep learning clearly has not made a great smash because, you know, I wish it had, right? I, you know, I've been to an emergency room multiple times in Ontario and I have never got to see a doctor with, low, with fewer than four hours. Right? So I wish deep learning is so great that can, you know, revolutionize scheduling in an emergency room and assign the exact number of doctors nurses and x-ray machine to every room so that everybody arrived within 15 minutes they can get treatment and so forth but it hasn't happened it hasn't happened because deep learning can't do it it's not because no one wanted to do it but but simply deep learning is not suitable for this complex task what it is suitable is for the quote-unquote simple task of writing poetry uh, uh, creating a beautiful imagery that looked like johnny Depp, but you know has fans different kind of haircut and so forth but those very limited domains, they are ex excellent. So the point of whether AI is sent in, I thought it is, you know, everybody recognizes a joke. It is far from being sent in. If you send it in, I would love it if you be sent in because I would love to go to an emergency room and have AI admit me and treat me and get me out of there in one hour instead of waiting four hours for a doctor. Clearly, deep learning is not doing anything to help out in those situations. And it is far from being able to. At this mm -hmm. point. Yeah, and I think Ernest, you, you also mentioned like you've been in, in like a machine learning field for decades. Uh, what was it like at the beginning when you just started learning machine learning, and like what what has changed over the past few decades? Yeah, that uh, very interesting. You know, when I was in graduate school, I was a physics uh, PhD. I I was actually not in a formal uh, machine learning program, but I read and I'm interested in uh, listening to lecture. Actually, I. I went, I, uh, one time I uh, went to a machine learning um, seminar that uh, uh, Jeff Hinton was giving in U of T. That was back before he even become a, a 
you know, the father of deep learning. So I, I, you know, I've attended all kinds of machine learning lectures, even so I'm not formally studying machine learning. So I pick up on all kinds of neural network because neural network, a lot of physicists had work on neural network in the early days. Jeff Hinton himself is a physics undergrad. <laughs> a lot of people uh, know. And um, so, you know, it's not a big leap from being theoretical physicists to be interested in machine learning because that's very common. Uh, but it is only when I first joined IBM that I've really been formally introduced to this, this whole technology. And it was in the, in the, in the early days, um, the models were quite, uh, limited. You know, we were already using tree based model, like uh, decision tree and classification tree, but a lot of time we use simpler statistical model, such as Bayesian models, uh, and the hidden Markov model. They are very. Um, not as advanced as today's machine learning algorithms, such as deep learning and such as random forest and gradient boosters and tree, but they are the embryonic form of those technology already there when I first joined the industry. So, you know, and, and quite frankly, it was not uh, completely effective. You know, we, we were using simple models solving simple problems. Uh, there were no deep learning at that time. There were no random forest at the time. So a lot of the problems are not, very, you know, they, they, these tools are not particularly effective in solving the problem. Now it is becoming much more effective. So, you know, the accuracy in prediction that we have made, even in a tough field that the desktop manager is, you know, probably significantly better than what we obtained back in the day. So I think partly it's because of our maturity in, and because of the increasing sophistication of learning algorithm on one hand, uh, the ability to avoid overfitting. That's the major advance. Uh, but the, on the other hand, it is also uh, maturity in understanding what are the input, what, what kind of processing you need to apply to the input to make them suitable for the learning algorithm. That's also uh, an important ingredient. So I think the combination of better models and better data processing and feature engineering lead to today's a much better success rate in applying this learning than when I first started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think Predict Now is still like a young company. I think maybe it's a, it's been like a year, uh, maybe less than two years, Ernest, I'm assuming. Yeah, less, yeah okay, about, about two, two years. years. And I think you, you already have like a lot of clients that's closely working with you already. And I, and I think you already have a lot of like success cases too. So not like mentioning names with those clients, but can you share us a little bit more about like the success that Predict Now has been able to help its clients achieve? Yes. So... Yeah, some of the success are very recent and it's actually surprised us uh, how, how significant they are. You know, we thought that, you know, machine learning might be able to improve something on the margin. You know, if your, um, you know, return is 10%, uh, maybe you make it into 11%, 12%, you know, should be you know, happy. I would be happy if somebody sell me a program that makes my return go from 10 to 12%, right? Um, nothing to be sneered. But instead... Oftentimes, the improvement is 50%. So one of our clients, for example, show us a strategy that said, this strategy would have lost 50% year to date. Applying PredictNow.ai's corrective AI layer, make it profitable up over 6%. You know, it's go from minus 50 to 6. And it is live trading. We are not talking about research or practice, live trading. Uh, another uh, project that we did for a Toronto-based ETF show an improvement, we, we help them um, optimize the allocation to different stocks within the, uh, within the ETF, right? They have, this ETF is an active 
actively manage ETF. It's not a, like a passive index ETF, but the, the portfolio manager has the ability to uh, decide on what allocation to this stock universe. And they, we show them that using AI to help allocate asset to the stock component increased their sharp ratio by again, 50%. Uh, so it is really significant. And, and these are all out of sample results. It's not, you know, overfitted backtest results. So, you know, it, it, it was quite um, eye-opening, the, the amount of uh, improvement that can be made um, using AI. So we are quite, uh, quite happy. So we are, you know, obviously building on these successes, we are hoping to help more customers achieve the same uh, level of success, you know, around Across the yeah, board. and I think it's it's very interesting. The first example you mentioned, Ernest, about that that company that was that was supposed to lose fifty percent but lost less. Um, I, I'm really curious to see like what variables did Predict Now actually help them change? Is it just like on the days that Predict Now thinks that it might not lose money, it tells them not to execute on that day, or is it um, when it reaches like a stop loss that you realize that, okay, we should cut the loss. Yeah, I think it's a very simple, like I said, we produce a number called the probability of profit for the strategy. So they, they establish a cutoff, you know, maybe 50% is the default cutoff. If the probability of profit is less than 50%, don't trade that day or liquidate all your positions. Being a hedge fund, you have that freedom. Now, if you are a mutual fund, maybe harder. You don't, no one lets you to go 100% cash as a mutual fund. So it's a bit harder. But for a hedge fund, hey, go all cash. Great, everybody go home early, nice day. And um, so that's the main thing. We recommend them when to go 100% cash on certain days. And because of these probability of profit calculation, and that actually helped them avoid many of the big losses uh, that would have occurred otherwise. Oh, I see, I see, okay. And also I, I'm, I'm really curious to see, maybe our listeners will be curious to see as well, if Predict Now actually can apply to things outside of asset management. Um, because like, of course, like machine learning has been applied into many, many diff different fields. So Ernest, in your experience, have you helped any clients as outside of asset management to other fields um, that we might not know now? Yes, I think that's the, that's actually the whole founding um, ambition of predict now is to not just apply this to asset management, which is, we find the toughest use case because of the low signal to noise ratio, but to apply the same philosophy and technology outside of asset management. And the first uh, vertical that we, we found some success is in uh, surprisingly oil and gas exploration. So we partnered with a firm in Wyoming and they provide us with some of the private data on oil wells measurements. They have sensors measuring uh, different physical properties of an oil well. And we combine that with data that we discover, uh, you might call it big data, uh, and make a much more accurate prediction of oil well productivity than is, um, uh, than current faults that the current industry standard formula allows. So that is, I would say our first preliminary success outside of asset management. Now, uh, word of caution, uh, we are still in the process of validating this result to making sure that, uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, we have not, you know, look at data that is, uh, has information leakage. We haven't uh, um, interpreted some data incorrectly because we do work with uh, a domain expert. For you know, but we ourselves, I myself at least, don't have the domain expertise to judge. So we are carefully, carefully working with our partner in validating this. But the initial uh, result is quite excellent, 
which should not come as a surprise because, as I said, whatever work in asset management, which is extremely noisy and extremely low signal to noise ratio, in theory, should work much better outside. So, uh, although we are pleased uh, with this uh, this success, it should not really have come as a surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's really amazing. Uh, it can actually apply to outside of machine learning. Uh, on a related note, I think, you know, like Ernest, I'm, I'm sure people ask you this all the time as an AI researcher and someone working in AI, um, many general public has concerns about like what the future might be for AI and if AI will eventually become, you know, eventually become sentient and some people think it might disrupt the humankind even to that, to that part. Um, so can you talk to us more about like where you think AI is right now and where do you think it will be for the next five or 10 years? Like, will there be like a major breakthrough in the next 10 years? What are your thoughts? Yes, I think that um, uh, it definitely will have an impact on uh, what people do. Um, so, you know, in the in a very professional technical context, for example, a lot of, let's say just in asset management, a lot of the uh, financial analysts, um, you know, may be better off uh, applying their domain expertise in training a machine learning model to creating data as input to a machine learning model rather than you know, using the spreadsheet to make projections going mm -hmm. forward. So, you know, they essentially become financial data scientists rather than analysts, and that might be a much better use of their time. Um, and um, similarly, you know, in oil and gas, you know, you, you have all these engineers that are fitting data into traditional formula and making projection. Again, they may be better off retooling and becoming a oil data scientist that are much more expert in gathering data and massaging the data in the form usable from input to machine learning program. So that's a, in, a, in a very um, narrow technical context. I'm sure that the existing experts and engineers can be retrained to use this tool um, more than, uh, and, and, you know, and move away from the traditional tool. So I don't think that would be a big disruption of their profession. Um, on the other hand, some people say, wow, you know, the, um, AI can now write uh, uh, commercial, uh, write ad copies. So why do we need all these copy editors, copywriters? Well, that might eliminate the jobs of some copywriters and editors who are not particularly creative. Again, um, you know, a lot of these uh, machine learning algorithms cannot be considered a, you know, particularly original creative uh, writer. So I think that there are still elements of human creativity that surpasses that of the machine. Uh, I, you know, if you are truly a creative uh, artist, I, I don't think that uh, your job will be much threatened. I think the, the jobs that are more, much more threatened are the ones that require lower skill, lower creativity, and uh, lower intelligence, um, and while without requiring human touch. So I don't think, for example, a... Um, Babysitter or a um, elementary school teacher can be replaced by a machine because children just doesn't react to a machine the same way they react to um, a, a, a kind human being. And similarly, um, you know, you don't necessarily want your uh, um, barber or hairdresser to be a machine because um, you might enjoy uh, a human touch more so than just the mechanical uh, cutting of your hair. So. Uh, I think any any job that require human touch or human empathy, emotions are pretty safe. But it is true that those jobs that you might call, you know, maybe bookkeeping, that doesn't require any understanding of what they are, 
doing, you know, just a very mechanical bookkeeping task can certainly be taken over by machine. And, and um, you know, if you, if one is in those profession, you know, one should really look for um, a, a secondary profession, maybe a hobby. You know, a lot of people I find, uh, you know, some of my friends might be, might be, you know, engaging in their primary profession in a job like bookkeeping. Uh, and that is likely to be threatened by machine learning. But at the same time, they have a hobby like creative photography or music that they enjoy in their spare time. You know, it is very possible that they, what they view as their hobby could become much more valuable in the future than their main profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, and I think, Ernest, you mentioned a really good point. And I think, like, some people are still debating, like, in the future, might AI become conscious? Um, and I think that it's uh, it's a question I'm being thinking about myself as well, because right now what AI or machine learning does is basically learning historical data and predicting future outcomes. It doesn't really have a conscious mind, so to speak. Um, but Ernest, do you think in the next like few decades, like the AI will potentially reach like a conscious mind? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure that um, <clears throat> even philosophers have completely agree on what the definition of consciousness is because, um, you know, I have, I'm a theoretical physicist and I have read books by Brian Greene to try to explain the nature of consciousness from a purely um, theoretical physics point of view. And it gets, um, you know, quite, um, you know, quite strange. You know, the, the, the understanding of consciousness from a philosopher and from a physicist point of view can be quite different. And uh, so when you say, well, is the um, AI system conscious? The, 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 I would say the best answer is by whose definition of consciousness are you saying is conscious, right? <laughs> you know, if you have 10 philosophers and physicists, put them in the room, I bet you will have 10 different definitions of consciousness. And so we humans cannot even agree on the definition of consciousness. I don't think that therefore there's a, um, a uniform, uh, you know, sort of a threshold that, oh, this machine has finally achieved consciousness. Um, yeah. Because it is you know, it's a subjective in, in, in a lot of people's mind, it's a subjective opinion. Therefore the machine, he can, he can say that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm conscious, but you won't believe it because, you know, any machine can be programmed to say that I'm conscious. If you're not the machine, you can't know uh, that you're conscious. That's a subjective definition of causes. On the other hand, from a theoretical physics point of view, consciousness can have a objective uh, meaning. And, you know, maybe you can cause an AI system being objectively conscious. Um, but some philosophers would disagree that they are actually uh, conscious. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a paradox. And I, I think maybe like, maybe some, some people say consciously, maybe like they think that, yeah, I can think independently. Um, so not, not trained by mm -hmm. historical data. So by that definition, Ernest, do you mm -hmm. think that might, that might happen in the next few decades? Well, I mean, um, if that's the definition, I think a lot of system these days are already, you can call them conscious, right? Because a lot of the system, um, Let's say, you know, assisted driving, they don't, you don't need to train them with historical data. They just react. So, you know, you, you, um, a, a brick react to, to someone pressing it and, and they just react to the environment, um, without any pre-programming because that's the only way that they can react. It is sort of a physical reaction, uh, to external stimuli. So it's not so much, um, uh, training. And in other cases, it could just be random reaction. There are 10 ways that the system can behave. And by randomness, it can behave in, you know, with a distribution, not necessarily equally probable, but you know, when, in one of those ways. And you would say, oh, 
you know, it's behaving differently every time. Is it conscious? Well, it could just be randomness. Um, and so, um, you know, even I, I don't necessarily can testify that I'm necessarily conscious because, you know, if you give me a certain stimuli, I certainly, you know, usually react in a certain way with some probability. So, um, you know, a lot of what we consider as consciousness uh, are, are, are basically a, I would say, probability uh, it, it outcomes that are governed by, by, by a stationary probability distribution. And um, it, 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 it may not happen the same way every time, but the distribution of likelihood that it will happen is fixed. Uh, so, so I think that, um, um, you know, whether uh, a, a you know, machine can be, can be called um, to take independent action without training, uh, it is, it, you know, it falls in the same category of, uh, you know, the question of what consciousness is. You know, just because it can take independent action without training does not necessarily mean that it is a conscious machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great, great, great response on that, Ernest. I want to shift our topic a little bit more into AI startups, uh, because I think back in 2016 mm -hmm. or 2017, there were there was an AI boom, uh, and I think Ernest, like as in your in your memory, I think I think historically there has been AI winter. There has been AI booms. And I think 2016 and 2017 was AI, the AI boom. There were so many AI companies coming up. But then I think after that, there was a slowdown. Um, and I don't think there are that many AI startups right now around. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Why aren't more people coming into the AI field and creating more products like Predict Now that can actually benefit like society? Well, I mean, the, the, the wave of AI firms come about usually because of some fundamental advances in AI technology like deep learning. Right? So once you, uh, some people solve a fundamental in the network, um, many people read about it and they can replicate it and they immediately start a company to exploit this new technology in different ways. So, you know, I don't know, I don't have the statistics of how many AI firms have started, but, you know, recent advances like the... Uh, uh, GPT GPT three language model spawned a lot of firms that use that fundamental technology in their own um, vertical. You know whether it's ad copying or uh, other you know fraud detection or um, speech recognition or what whatnot. So every time there's a fundamentally uh, powerful new powerful product come out, there will be a lot of new uh, firms come out to to exploit that ecosystem. So, you know, for example, recently we have the um, uh, uh, DALI system that uh, OpenAI created, which create a lot of buzz. And I'm sure that a lot of um, TV production company, uh, commercial production company, graphics company will be making use of that technology. And, you know, and, and of course, new startup will spring up to use that technology to their own end. So, I think that, um, I, and I think that's, that's the premise of OpenAI is that they want to create something fundamental that other companies, other startups can capitalize on and build a next layer of application. So um, I would say that the reason perhaps that uh, it was lower in the last few years uh, is because, you know, these major advances like deep learning doesn't happen too often, uh, but, uh, you know, certainly, uh, GPT-3 is a big breakthrough, and, um, and DALI is another big breakthrough, and hopefully that will rekindle uh, some of the investment and interest in AI. Mm -hmm. But again, I caution again that those are AI that based on homogeneous data. Uh, in the mock 
complicated uh, data such as industrial data, it will be a vertical by vertical conquest. We have, you know, as Predict now has found out, you really need a lot of domain expertise uh, to understand what data is available in that industry before you can build a model. And so it's, uh, it's less about algorithm than about effective data science in each of these. Mm -hmm. And a follow-up question on that, it's like, is Predict Now also created because of some breakthrough in the past? Or are you just like, uh, or does he just firmly believe in your own research? No, no, we are um, uh, prompted by a, you might call it breakthrough in financial machine learning. And I often cite uh, Dr. Lopez Prado, who I consider a friend to be uh, the leader in, 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 you know, the revolutionary in this field. Uh, you know, he proposed this concept called meta-labeling. He claimed that it is a more effective use of AI uh, in asset management than the traditional way. And what meta-labeling is, we, we brand it as corrective AI. When, I, you know, when, you, when you explain to um, other um, non-experts what meta-labeling is, nobody understands the term. So we call it corrective AI and suddenly people understand mm -hmm. it. But corrective AI is essentially what uh, Dr. Lubeck Prado call um, Matter labor. And that is how we suddenly found success again in AI. You know, as I mentioned, we have decades without finding success using AI in asset management. And suddenly we have success. And that is not because of our own ingenious insight. It is because of the, the revolutionary uh, work that Lopez de Prado has written about in his books. And that we, and as well as many other uh, quantitative researchers in finance has picked up on. And I'm sure many of them are using it. Very successfully, it's only that uh, there are very few firms that decide to uh, exploit it, commercialize it as a product for other uh, asset managers to use. Most of these hedge funds, you know, the bigger multi-billion dollar fund would use that uh, idea internally. And so you don't see products out there offering that. Uh, I see, I see. Uh, that, that makes more sense. Um, I think Ernest, next topic, I want to ask more about the society changes of AI. I think one major question is like the potential monopolization of AI um, by certain corporations or certain countries, um, which I want to ask you like what you think, because for example, people might think that, you know, OpenAI has a lot of funding, um, is still like in fundamentally a for-profit company. So like, do you, do you see monopolization happen in machine learning in the future? Just like, for example, Google does to search, will there be a monopolization of AI in the future? Well, I think that uh, many of the fundamental AI algorithms are not monopolized because, uh, you know, they are usually released at open source software, but it is the, um, once again, uh, it's interesting in AI, it is not the algorithm that is, uh, difficult because algorithm usually are public, you know, they. They are open source. You can, you don't even need to rewrite the code. The code is there. You know, Google open source their code in, you know, deep learning code as TensorFlow. Uh, and Microsoft has like GPM and so forth. You know, they, they, you know, Facebook has a PyTorch. Everybody open source their core algorithm. However, it is data that is the mon monopolistic nature of this. You know, it's no good to you. You have the best machine learning system, deep learning system, if you don't have the data for it to learn. And here is where um, big companies have a, and governments have big advantages. Uh, and, uh, you know, for a small company, um, you have to buy data, whereas the big company, their job, they are already collecting data. So for us, for example, for Predict Now, we buy data, financial data uh, from big companies, but we also work with big companies to help them to exploit the data that they already collected. 
and merge it with data that they didn't know exists outside of the company. So for us, we are kind of a matchmaker between the people who have the data with the, uh, with the technology that can exploit them. Uh, but certainly uh, the advantage uh, of having that data is, is, is a very difficult to surmount. You know, if you don't have that data, uh, if you don't have a uh, Google or Facebook in your country that um, collect this data, it is uh, you know, much harder to build a business that uses this data to, to, to predict things. So big countries definitely has an advantage. The US, uh, China, India, they have a lot of transactions that they can capture, but the small country have uh, much more limited transactions. So, you know, they, even if they have the best software, it will be hard to build a model because they don't have that data uh, in their hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great insight, Ernest. Uh, my next question or last question will be, what's next for Predict Now? Like, what are your plans? What are your visions for Predict Now for the next, let's say, five years to 10 years? I think that most uh, asset managers come to us, they were um, most impressed by our optimization, optimization algorithm because that's not something that is tried anyway. You know, as I said, corrective AI is not our invention. Dr. Ovechkin just invented it few years ago, but there's a different name. Um, we just make it more accessible to the user. But what we have developed originally is all conditional parameter or conditional portfolio optimization. And that invention is what actually captured the imagination of that. So we definitely want to uh, roll out this product to many more asset managers. But at the same time, um, our vision is to apply that to outside asset management as we, uh, as we discussed. And that is um, both the corrective AI as well as the optimization technique. One vertical at a time of that range, starting with oil and gas, and then move on oil to manufacturing, and then uh, further afield. And at the same time, acquiring the domain expertise to allow it to really capitalize on the data collected by those uh, firms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for companies, uh, Ernest, for companies who, who want to utilize machine learning, uh, what are the best ways for them to reach you or predict now? Well, our, our website has all, uh, you know, demo and also, um, invitation to have a meeting with us. So, you know, any firm that are interested in to have a meeting with me and all my colleagues just need to go to our website and set up an appointment. The, we have a calendar link there that would directly set up a meeting, um, with us. So it was a very easy process to get yeah, in touch. And the website is predictnow.ai, just for other students who don't know. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much, Ernest, for the, an hour, like our brilliant conversations with you. I always enjoy it. So thank you so much and wish best of luck for Predict Now and we'll chat soon. Thanks again for the interview. Okay. Take care. Builders Build, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Builders Build content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.